Well, life is all about preparation. When the soldier goes off to war, he doesn't go unprepared. The months and years of training. Soldiers are taught how to dress in their military attire. Soldiers are instructed the proper handling of a gun. They're trained in the operation of their machinery that they're responsible for during a crisis, ingrained with the uh, the requirement of submitting to their superiors so that in the day of battle they'll be able to uh, do what's required of them. And before deployment, there's specific instructions about going to situations surrounding their current environment they might expect. Life's all about preparation. And long before a surgeon takes a scalpel and makes an incision into another human being, been years of training. Courses have been taken in biology and chemistry and anatomy and physiology. Long hours of surgical observation take place. Practice is performed on cadavers or other artificial substances. There's particular focus on the surgery at hand. And before the surgeon, there's preparation. Patient is prepared. Instruments need to be sterilized. Nurses and doctors need to be sterilized before a surgery takes place. Life is all about preparation. Long before a professional athlete steps on the playing surface before a game, there's been much preparation. A golfer has spent countless hours hitting ball after ball after ball after ball. A basketball player has taken shot after shot after shot after shot. Long days in the gym. Football players have pumped lots and lots of iron, getting strong. Baseball players have hit many baseballs coming out of the jugs machine in the the cage Before the game, there's been conditioning, coaching regarding the particular strategy ahead of them. There's been travel, uniforms put on, shoes laced, and then the game. Life's all about preparation, and the Christian life is no different. We are following Jesus Christ, are in constant preparation. You know, there is a day, and there is an ultimate goal, and there is an ultimate performance in some sense, not performance, but there is an ultimate day we are waiting for, It's a day when we stand before God, blameless in Jesus Christ. And life is all about preparation for that day. And in many ways, God is all about preparing you for that day as well. So we come to our text this morning. Peter's pen is clear. He wants to prepare you to live the Christian life so that you can live the Christian life so that you will end the Christian life well. Particularly, he wants you to suffer. That's what he wants. He wants to prepare you to suffer. Or as I've entitled my message this morning, Get Ready to Suffer. Let's read what Peter has to say to us. 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, Peter writes, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he was suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Though they're judged in the fleshest men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The main thought of these six verses here comes 
in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. As Christ has suffered, we need to arm ourselves for suffering. We might even say it that way. Arm yourself for suffering. So where do you arm yourself? It's a, it's a military word that carries a clear image in the minds of Peter's readers. It's an image of a soldier getting ready for battle. Girding his loins, large, thick belt with lots of loops in it where he could carry his swords and his ropes and his rations. Perhaps bags for plunder of whatever he finds in his fighting. Across his upper torso is the breastplate. Light enough to allow lots of movement and yet strong enough to withstand the enemy blows. Place upon his sheet his boots, upon his feet his boots, spikes upon the end of them to give him secure footing in the warfare. Takes up the shield. Depending upon the battle, he takes up the appropriate shield. If he's going to onslaught a, um, a fortified place, he might take a big shield from, uh, from shoulders to knees. He can get behind, crouch behind, lest they start shooting their arrows, lest they start firing some things at them. Or if he is in hand-to-hand combat, he can take a smaller shield which he can deflect the blows of the enemy. He takes his helmet made of a strong material to protect against the blows of his enemy. In Peter's day, the shell was often of cast of bronze or an iron alloy with a, a chin strap and a face guard or visor or whatever. Had some padding in there to make it comfortable. Had the strap to secure it so he could withstand a blow upon the head. The soldier also took up his sword, his offensive weapon, various shapes and sizes, but the purpose of them was to get at and kill and destroy the enemy. This is the imagery that would have come into mind for those in Peter's day. They would have heard this. Arm yourselves for suffering. And it's an appropriate image because the Christian life is a war. It's a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a war against unbelievers in this world who would seek to thwart us in following God. The Christian life is a war against the lust of the flesh which seeks to find satisfaction in the material world without satisfaction in God. Christian life's a war against the flaming arrows of the evil one. And Peter described it such in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There it is, waging war against the soul. In this case, the battle here is to prepare ourselves for the battle against suffering. It is interesting, however, as Peter speaks here about arm yourselves with the same purpose He isn't telling us to distance ourselves from suffering. He's not saying to avoid it. He's not saying to resist it. Rather, he's saying, fight the fight of faith through your suffering. That's the idea. I say this because suffering will come upon each and every one of us. Job 5.7 Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. You see in a campsite, seeing sparks, they fly upwards. So likewise, our life, we are born for trouble And if you're not suffering now, you will suffer. It may be next week. It may be years from now. But know that suffering is coming. And this morning, my aim as a pastor is to help prepare you for that day when suffering comes. Because suffering is what ultimately prepares us in many ways to meet God. See, the soldier doesn't begin his training the day before he goes off to war. Nor does the surgeon begin to read up on his surgery Hours before the surgery takes place. Nor does the athlete begin training 
the morning before the big game. No, there's, there's lots of preparation. And suffering is the same way. You don't begin to prepare for suffering when you're facing suffering in the next hour. Or when you find yourself in the midst of suffering, that's not the time to prepare. The day to prepare for, for trials and suffering is long before they come. In the day of trial, you're going through a trial, a treatise on the sovereignty of God won't be much help. In the day of trial, a treatise on the goodness of God isn't going to be a lot of help. In the day of trial, a treatise upon, upon God's purpose in suffering isn't going to help you very much. But what's going to help you is years of preparation in these very things and the, the sovereignty of God, in the goodness of God, His kind intention upon us in the midst of our our suffering, His purpose in suffering, as we reflect upon those years before the trials come, that's what's going to help you in the day of trial. And my aim this morning is to help you prepare for that season of suffering that will come upon your life. It's not by avoiding the suffering, rather it's being prepared for it. Children are taught, if your clothes catch on fire, stop, drop, and roll. Put it out. In California, children are taught to Drop, cover, and hold on for when the earthquake takes place. Children in the Midwest are taught to, to cover up right when they find a seek place of, of refuge when the tornado comes. And so likewise this morning, I want to help prepare you for suffering because that's Peter's aim before us. Get ready to suffer. Look again at verse 1, what he says. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also the same purpose. Our purpose in life is to follow Christ. It just says it right. That is our aim. That is our mind. That is our thought. Our same purpose, our same mind, our same thought pattern ought to be that of Christ who Himself also suffered. And it's no doubt that Christ suffered in the flesh. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He suffered in His body. suffered in His soul so the wrath of God came upon Him. 1 Peter 2.24 he Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. Christ suffered and likewise Peter says that we are to arm ourselves the same purpose. He was the stone that was rejected and we are living stones that ought to follow after Him and be rejected as well. Well, several times in First Peter, He gives us the purpose of our lives and every time it's interesting, it has to do with suffering. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called. That is, you've been saved. God has called you. He has saved you for this purpose. Since Christ also has suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. The purpose of our life is to follow the example of Christ and to suffer. Chapter 3, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You give a blessing because we've been called to get a blessing. And even when people are bringing evil and insult against us, we are to bring the, the blessing to them and suffer righteously. That's our call. That's what we have been purposed for. That's why God has saved us. So we might not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but might receive this blessing and give that blessing to others. And just as Jesus suffered, the purpose of our life is to suffer as well. We've been called to this. Now, it's a strange thought for people in America. We who live at relative ease. It's almost beyond our comprehension we've been called to suffer. 
many ways, because God has been gracious to us a nation, we don't have the kind of suffering that many other nations have. And yet here it's clear what Peter said. We need to get ready for suffering. And I think about Paul in Philippians 1.29. He couldn't be clearer about this purpose. He says this, and listen carefully, for to you it's been granted for Christ's sake. To you it's been given for Christ's sake. God has given this to us for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Here at Rock Valley Bible Church, we love the grace of God. We love thinking about God's gift to us, giving us faith, granting us repentance, choosing us, showering His blessing upon us, apart from anything that we have done. And that is right. It has been granted to you to believe in Him. That's what First Peter, Philippians 1.29 says. But don't miss the second part of that. It's been given to you to believe. It has been given to you to suffer. We ought to rejoice in that as well. Suffering is a gift. And really leads to my first point this morning. My first principle is this. Suffering brings sanctification. Suffering brings sanctification. Look at how verse 1 ends. Because... He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, last week was a problem text. It was very difficult to interpret. And we've come upon another verse that's difficult to interpret. Some say that Peter here is speaking of Jesus, the one who suffered in the flesh. Now that he's alive in the Spirit, according to chapter 3, verse 18, he has now ceased from sin. Some say that's Jesus. And it might be. I think the difficulty though, is that it kind of indicates that Jesus at one time sinned and now He ceased from it, which is, which is hard to understand. But, but the flow from verse 1 seems to indicate that might be Christ. That might be who it is. Others say that Peter is speaking of the hope here of us as, as we suffer in the flesh. Now, there's difficulty in this interpretation as well because those who suffer in the flesh are hardly sinless. Um, and even after suffering... We still sin and and carry on. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly what these words mean. If I had to fall anywhere, I think I'd fall that it's, it's talking about us. Talking about the purpose of suffering, if suffering brings sanctification. I say this mostly because of the context of verse 2. Because in verse 2, he seems to indicate how it is that we ought to live. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And so it seems almost that he's talking about us here. He's talking about Christ. That's what, I just don't know. However, for my point, I am taking the application here that suffering brings sanctification it is for us. And even if Peter here is talking about Christ, which could be, the principle is still the same. Suffering brings sanctification. Let me give you some examples of this and I'll illustrate it. Um, James. That great epistle starts off in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various, what? Various trials. And what a strange thing that is. Why in the world would we consider it joy upon our life when we encounter trials? Well, as James says, it all has to do with the effect that the trials have upon our life. He continues, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. In other words, James telling us the trials that come upon our life have the effect ultimately to make us perfect and complete. Ceasing from sin, right? And that has to do with our sanctification. James says that trials brings perfection. Peter says suffering brings sanctification. 
Paul says the same thing. Romans 5 verse 3. We exult in our tribulations. The difficulties that come upon us, we result, we exult in that. Now why in the world do we exult in our tribulations? As Paul explains. We exult in our tribulations knowing that our tribulations bring about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So you summarize that. It's the same as James. It's the same as Peter. We rejoice in the day of our tribulations because we know that they ultimately produce hope in us. And that hope doesn't disappoint because it's founded in God. Trials, difficulties, tribulations produce perseverance. They produce proof in character. They produce hope. They produce perfection. And as I have said here, suffering brings sanctification. Think about the words of the psalmist. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I was just going astray. I was going my way, but then the affliction of God came upon me and now my life is different. Now I keep your word. It's because suffering brings sanctification. Or Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. There is a way that the affliction of God coming upon your life helps you to learn God's Word. In fact, there's no better way to learn the Psalms than to go through great trials in your life. Trials in your life will make it come alive. And that's what he says. It's good for me I was afflicted because that I may learn your statutes. You can learn of these things. You can experience them. And you can grow in your sanctification. It's a suffering that brings sanctification. You say, why is it? Why does sanctification, suffering bring sanctification? Let me just say that at this point, this isn't a truism always. It's not always that suffering brings sanctification. When you suffer, you can respond of one of two ways. I've heard it said before. You can either get bitter or you can get better. And if suffering caused you to get better, then it has produced its sanctifying work in your life. Suffering has caused you to get bitter. It has not worked. But oftentimes, suffering does bring this betterment, this sanctifying work in your life. But why? Why is it? How is it that, that suffering works like this? And the, the key to the question is that suffering strips away our comfort. I mean, we can easily cling to the things of the world. But when the things of the world are taken away from us, we have nowhere else to turn to except to the Lord. And, and when we have nowhere else to turn to except the Lord, it's at those times we're less prone to sin. We are. As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to see godly people go through trials in life. And uh, I've been encouraged oftentimes by the testimony of those going through troubles. Very much I've been encouraged. And I've heard this time after time after time after time. They say their trial was so difficult that they sought the Lord more earnestly than ever before. They spent days in constant prayer to God for help. They searched the Scriptures like never before, devouring them because they were hungry. They fasted in seeking after God, and God was faithful to them. And they get through their trials. At the end of the day, they say, as Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. As, as saints... Christian ones who've gone through the suffering process to end up on the sanctifying side. They've looked back upon those times and expressed words of praise for the work that God did in the trials they brought upon their life. I've heard this time after time after time again in people. 
And in this way, I think suffering acts a bit like discipline. In Hebrews 12.11, it speaks about how discipline, all discipline for the moment does not seem to be joyful but sorrowful. Kids, can you affirm that? Can you say amen? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. It is not a happy thing. It's a difficult thing. But afterwards, to those who have been trying by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so likewise, suffering is often the disciplining hand of God to direct us. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's a purpose often of God's work and suffering in our life. It's often the back end of suffering that people realize the progress they've made in sanctification. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Peter writes, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There it is. You're suffering for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So the sufferings, after the sufferings, you're going to come. And perhaps that's eschatological, looking to the ultimate end is where it is, probably. Um, but yet there is a sanctifying work and effect that suffering has in our life. I think about um, a great illustration of this, Ivana experienced in our youth. Before we were married, early on in our marriage, Yvonne attended UCLA. UCLA is um, in Los Angeles, not the most righteous place in the world. Um, I was attending seminary in Los Angeles, and uh, part of my practical ministry was being on the campus of UCLA where I was involved in a, a Bible study there. And, um, you know, it, it was very interesting to see, as I intermixed with uh, students there on the campus of UCLA as Yvonne was in it um, day after day, uh, the the worldly influence of UCLA was immense. I mean, uh, I remember one time there was a one of your roommates grew up strong Christian environment, strong Christian church, and she went to a Christian college, and then she went to UCLA, and she heard something from the teacher. And what'd she do, Yvonne? <laughs> she like, plugged her ears, said, "I don't want to hear that. That's just wrong." She plugged her ears because it was so bad, because she was so sensitive to it. She was raised in a righteous, pure environment and then went to this. That was kind of the perspective of what UCLA is. Now, on the campus of UCLA, which I was involved with and Yvonne was involved with, there was a ministry based at a church, Grace Community Church there. Every Friday evening, about 100 college students attended this Bible study. And I think today it's like up to 300 or something like that. It's, it's just a huge Bible study that, uh, that is just the Lord has been prospering in, in a great way. And uh, I remember my times there were, were sweet times. Uh, the, the students there really had a great heart to worship the Lord. They had a great heart to learn from God's Word. The spiritual vitality at ministry was, was top-notch. I mean, it, it, was, it was an encouraging thing. Oftentimes, Bible studies start, I forget, 7 o'clock, something like that. It was over, and oftentimes just went to, to 1, 2 in the morning, just people fellowshipping with each other. And, and, you, and you say, um, why was that the case? Well... I'll tell you after a little bit. But after our experience at UCLA, um, we had the privilege of being involved in several college ministries on Christian campuses. And uh, the spiritual vitality hunger for God's Word was noticeably less at Christian campuses. Now, with some exceptions, the, there were some students who were on fire for the Lord, and that was encouraging. But most of them, busy with Christian activity, but their, their hunger and their starving for God's Word 
just wasn't there. It was much less demonstrably different than at UCLA. And you say, what's the difference? I think here's the difference. Those at UCLA were suffering. They had to go out and battle every day. Living in the dorms was a battle for them. Co-ed dorms was a battle for them. Drinking parties here. Sin over here. Worldly philosophy coming in from the, the classrooms all around them. Constantly having to be on the alert. Their fellow classmates urging them on in their sinful ways. And then think about these students then coming to Bible study. What was it like? It was like an oasis in the desert. It was a place where they said, God, feed me, help me now. And they were so hungry for God's Word. They didn't want to be anyplace else. They wanted to be with the people of God. Hungry for any kind of help that be given them for the battle that they would face the next day at school. Psalm 84 verse 10 was their constant cry. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. You say, why were those students so passionate for the Lord? Because the hardships they were facing day in, day out were forcing them to turn to Him. Now think about the students of the Christian campus. They had gobs of Christian friends. They grew up in Christian homes. They had Christian professors. They had Bible classes. They had chapels several times a week. They had their churches. They had their ministry. Life was easy. Life was a blessing. Had very little difficulty. And what was the fruit of that? Lukewarmness, by and large. Now, I'm not saying at this point all Christian colleges are bad. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's a time of great blessing, really, to be surrounded by Christians and God's Word all the time. And I don't want to discourage any of you children from going to Christian school, Christian high school, Christian college. That's fine. That's wonderful. But know that there are dangers in that environment. And the dangers in that environment is that suffering doesn't come. And you can just relax and be easy and go laissez-faire and go along with the crowd into a lukewarmness rather than on fire passion for the Lord. Because when your life is easy, passion for God isn't necessary upon your life. But when your life comes hard, you have no other choice but to lean upon Him. That dependence will deepen your faith. As I put it, suffering produces sanctification. And so I just put that out there for your parents. That's That's been my experience. It's been Yvonne's experience. And in, in, we've just seen students in difficult environments with trust the Lord have shined greatly. Why, why do you think Daniel shines so brightly. Daniel was ripped out of Israel, taken from his parents, trained in the brainwashing school of the Babylonian Empire. He had nowhere else to turn, but he turned to the Lord. As a result of that, he's one of the most righteous examples of godly living in all the Bible. Why? Because I think that in that environment, though many in that environment will be swept away, those who stay strong in that environment will stand true forever. And that's what Daniel did walked with integrity through the challenges that faced him. So, there it is. My first point, suffering brings sanctification. Here's my second point. Verses 2 through 4. Sanctification brings suffering. And and, and again, this isn't true in every circumstance. Um, I mean, generally, sanctification brings blessing. But there are some times when sanctification brings suffering. And it did particularly for these people in in First Peter. I want to read for you verses 2 through 4 again. As I read them, here's your assignment. See if you can detect how it is that suffering came about because of their sanctification. He says, You all, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, 
no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Right? Do you see it? Sanctification brings suffering. Sanctification comes in verses 2 and 3. And the suffering comes in verse 4 precisely because your sanctification won't join with them and they will malign you in not joining with them. Now, the people here at Peter's day were in a unique situation. His readers were predominantly Gentiles converted out of a sinful environment, still living in a sinful environment, living in a pagan, idolatrous, sensual society. That certainly is not all of his readers were Gentiles involved in that society. Certainly he's writing to the scattered believers throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And certainly some of these people were Jewish and some of them were protected by being in godly homes and in godly synagogues and were protected from the abominable idolatries and from the, the lusts and sensualities of things that were taking place. But for the majority of readers, they were fully engaged in their pagan culture when God called them out of that into the church and to Christ. And Peter says, abandon those sins which characterized you previously. Look at verse 3. It says, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Your days of gross sin is over. There's no longer any need for you to continue in those sins. There's no longer any need for Christians to say, well, let me just enjoy my pleasures just a little bit longer before I follow Christ. He said, no, you're done with that. Whatever you spent in your sinful lifestyle back then, don't any longer live in that way. In verse 3, he identifies these terrible sins. And you might identify these as the sins of college students. These were the sins that I know I was around when I was in college. Gives you every reason to go to Christian college. Let's look briefly at these list of sins. Sensuality is the first one. Some of your translations say debauchery or lewdness. It's just no moral constraint. No constraint regarding sexual sin, physical violence. Just no constraint. No rules. Just the fruit of Darwinism. No rules. No accountability. Just do whatever you want. Lusts. Some of you translate say passions. Describes the persons governed by his desires. Sexual, otherwise. Whatever. Just a, a desire that just takes over and controls you. Drunkenness. Wine bubbles. That's what it is. Describes those who get intoxicated. Alcoholic beverages. Drunkenness. Third, fourth, one, two, three, four. Carousing. Some of you translate say orgies, revelries. The idea here is just partying in the public square, out and about, public place, milling, orgies, maybe sexual connotations there, just milling for pleasure and fun, drinking parties. That's talking about gathering together large amounts of alcohol, large amounts of people for large amounts of pleasure. That is college students. Abominable idolatries. Some say lawless idolatries. Some say detestable idolatries. Describing flat out sinful idolatry. You think about it. Idolatry is bad enough, but then you've got abominable idolatries. 
It's like, how can you get much... Idolatry by itself is abominable. How do you get abominable idolatries? Some translations say lawless idolatry. And some say that the, the sin here is so strong that the lawlessness referred to here is even lawless against the civil regulations of the Roman world. Idolatry such that the, the, the civil magistrates would shun upon what you did. Who knows what that is? It's just awful things that those in Peter's day were hardly engaged in until they heard the saving message of Christ. And when they heard the saving message of Christ, all that changed. They repented of their sins. They trusted in Jesus. They became followers of Him. And just as we are to, to follow after Him, 1 Peter 2.24, He bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what they had done. They had died to that sin. They had sought to live to righteousness. And Peter said, don't ever go back to any of that stuff. You spent enough time in those things. You don't need to indulge yourself in any such pleasure any longer. You are finished with that. In fact, look at how finished you are in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Peter's saying, listen, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And no longer ought you to live that way. Christ redeemed you from those sins. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Don't live after the pleasure of the world. At this point, I talked about college students. I want to address you graduates. I know we have Krista and I know we have Alyssa here someplace and Eric is here someplace. There might be more. Alyssa's right there. You graduates, you go out in the college world. How are you going to live? Are you going to live on fire, passion for the Lord? Or are you going to just live however? There is a choice here. It says we need to live the rest of the time we're alive. No longer for the lusts of men, the college party scene, but for the will of God. And it's not just applicable to college students. It's applicable to all of us. We're not to live in the lusts of men. We're to be different and we're to live according to the will of God. You say, what's the will of God? Well, First Thessalonians 4.3 says about us good. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Walking righteously and walking purely before Him is expression of love to, to Him, to Christ. None of these things ought to characterize our life. But be encouraged. A lot of these things characterized the people to whom Peter was writing. Because it even says here, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same exit of dissipation that you used to run with. You used to run in those ways with them. You have ceased from those things, but they were here. And I just say this, there's hope in the gospel of Christ for abominable idolaters. There is hope in the gospel of Christ for those who are sensual, for those who are governed by their lusts, for those who are filled with drunkenness, for those who have continued to walk in their carousings and in their drinking parties. There's hope for people like that, the cross of Christ. So don't ever despair upon people. Don't ever despair upon those out there. Bring the gospel to them. And you might just see then that First Peter, you can counsel to that. The time past is sufficient for you to have gone that way because now you're a believer in Christ and walk this way. What a great counsel advice that would be. And even in Corinth, that was the same way. Long list of sins that, that, that Paul listed to those in Corinth. First Corinthians chapter 6. Terrible sins. It says, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. There's hope in the gospel. 
But verse 4 says that because of their holiness and because of their purity, they face difficulties with their break in the past. In all this, so it says verse 4, they're surprised that you don't run with them into their same excesses of dissipation. Because you won't join in their sinful activities that used to be involved and they don't like it very much, as verse 4 ends, they malign you. They speak badly of you. See, when Jesus came into the world, He was the light. John 3.19 But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And you know what they did with the light? What did they do with the light? Snuffed it out. They crucified Him upon the cross. And the same takes place when we live righteous life before unbelievers. They will look at our lives and will hate it. Everyone who does evil hates the light. does not come to light for fear His deeds will be exposed. And so when you enter a sinful environment with people engaging in sin, they naturally expect you're going to join their folly. Hey, come on! Come join us! Have a beer! Join us in the fun! The end of Romans 1 is really interesting. He's talking about all this wickedness that's engaged in the world, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of murder, envy, strife, malice, deceit, their gossips, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, unloving, without understanding, disobedient to parents, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And then here it comes, Romans 1.32, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do those things, but they give hearty approval to others who practice the same. Why? Because sinners love company. Sinners love other sinners joining them. If you, join, if you don't join them, you may be in for some suffering because you haven't joined them. And if you're walking the righteous way, as it says here in verse 4, they're surprised. What, what is up with you? Why aren't you doing that? Proverbs 10, verse 23 says, doing wickedness like sport to a fool. A fool delights, thinks about new ways to do wickedness. That's why it says in Romans 1, they're inventors of evil. It's like sport to them. They think about it. They enjoy with that. And so as you don't no longer run with them, as you're not sporting with them in their folly, they don't like it. They're having fun and they can't understand. They're surprised. Why aren't you joining us? And their surprise then soon turns to persecution. It may end up they speak badly of you. That sanctification doesn't always bring suffering, but it may. If you are in a public sphere, in a public environment, you go to a public college, and there is this gross sin out there, you may very well face some persecution maligning from that. But just be encouraged. God says, don't be maligned in that. Don't, don't worry about that. Endure it. Suffer it. Because that's suffering that's going to bring you sanctification. Think about this. Suffering brings sanctification. Sanctification brings suffering. Suffering brings sanctification. Sanctification brings suffering. Suffering brings sanctification. Sanctification brings suffering. What's going to happen if you're in that environment? Your growth is just going to go up and up and up and up and up and up and you're going to love God more and more and more and more. So don't despise that. Realize, embrace this. God's plan for your life. I think about Joseph. It's a great biblical example of this. Potiphar entrusted his house to Joseph. Everything he owned was all in Joseph's hand. And then Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come lie with me. Joseph refused, calling it a great evil and sin against God. He says, I can't do that. But Potiphar's wife continued the temptation. Listen to Genesis 39, verse 10. 
that she spoke with Joseph day after day. Day after day he spoke with her. She spoke with him. But he didn't listen to her. He didn't lie beside her, be with her. And I'm sure that she was surprised Joseph didn't run. What, am I not attractive? What's wrong with me? You got everything. Why would you have me? Come lie with me. Day after day after day after day, Joseph's dealing with that. And then one day, it happened. Joseph was alone in the house. Everybody else and the workers were out there. And she said, I got my moment. She seized him, caught him by the garment, said, lie with me. And so strong was the onslaught that Joseph had to, to lee and flee and, and left his coat back there and just left and fled. And what did Potiphar's wife do? She maligned him. Here's his sanctification brings suffering. When he showed his true colors to be a man of integrity, she blasted him. Her husband returned home and she said, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. There it is. Same idea. Making sport of me. And I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled outside. And do you think that led to much suffering? I forget exactly what. It's 14 to 17 years of prison is what Joseph's sanctification brought him. Sanctification brings suffering. But do you think that in his suffering he was sanctified? I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. To God be the glory. Daniel's another biblical example. Because of the integrity of Daniel, God blessed his life greatly raising him up to the upper echelons of authority and leadership in Babylon. And others who were under him weren't pleased. And they had a plan, we're going to take this man out. Now, the Bible doesn't know why, tell us why they're hostile to Daniel, but it has to be something with his integrity. Because he was a, a righteous man through and through. When they tried to bring him down, it said they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So it wasn't his sin that's causing them. I think it was because of his righteousness, because God's blessing upon his life. And by the way, when God blesses you and prospers you and uh, pours out his, his kindness upon you, because of your sanctification, because you're walking righteously with him, you're receiving the blessing of God, others will come. And others will come and attack. I think that's what happened to Daniel. And they said to each other, Oh! We can't find any accusation of ground against him unless we find it against him with reference to the law of his God. So they tricked Darius into signing this document, this decree. Any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides the king for 30 days will be cast into the lion's den. You know what Daniel did? He continued in his sanctification. And did his sanctification bring him suffering? <laughs> yeah. Cost him a night with the lions. And it was only the sovereign hand of God protecting him from death that delivered him that day. Do you think Daniel was sanctified in the lion's den? I think he learned to trust God in the lion's den in greater ways than ever he had learned before. Certainly he knew of how God protected him. Certainly he went through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He saw that. He experienced it in the, the lion's den. Sanctification brings suffering. Now, it's not every case, every circumstance of your life you'll suffer because of your sanctification. However, think about First, Second Peter 3.10. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, right? All who are living a sanctified life will be persecuted. That will come. Suffering will come. And I just say this. College students, I say this, adults, if you make your supreme desire to run after God's will and not the lusts of men, 
Forsaking the lust of the flesh, there will be conflicts with others as your life conflicts with them. And suffering may very well be the case. But listen, don't be surprised when it comes. In a few weeks, we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It's coming upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised. It's not some strange thing were happening to you. Here it is. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, there you see the same thrust about the imitation. Since Christ has suffered, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. To the extent that we share in these sufferings of Christ, we are rejoicing because of the revelation of His glory. You will rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, right? God's spirit, his glory is upon you. You're living a sanctified life. The suffering is coming and you're rejoicing in that. And then he makes sure, he says, verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief or evildoer, or troublesome meddler, right? Don't suffer because of your sin. But if anyone, verse 16, suffers as a Christian for the name of Christ, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. There it is. Walk sanctified and the suffering will come. And when it comes, don't be surprised. And you eventually will be blessed. Well, I have a little bit of time and I have two last verses. I want to close with two simple admonitions, instructions. Admonition number one, verse five, trust the judgment. Trust the judgment. If you encounter unjust suffering, suffering is doing us right. Your tendency is going to be to fight it with all your might. What? Why did you do that? Why did you say those things against me? I wouldn't do that to you. Why do you malign me? I'm only doing the good thing. I'm only doing the right thing. You might be tempted to take it to court. You might be tempted to do whatever. you know. And soon your questions would turn into accusations. No, you're the one that's wrong. I'm doing right and you're doing what's wrong. And soon you may turn on the offensive and point out all the wickedness of those opposing you. Yeah, you're coming against me. Well, I'm coming against you. That's not the way to respond. That's not how Christ responded. Peter says this, though. Don't worry. You don't have to deal with them. I'll deal with them. Trust the judgment. Trust the future day in which God's going to deal justly with them. Look at verse 5. But, even though they're maligning you, the contrast here is this. They will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There will be a day where they will account to God for all the injustice that they have done against you. You don't have to even the score. God will. And I just tell you, there is an amazing way that the ultimate judgment, vindication, will deliver you today from a vindictive spirit. When you trust the judgment you won't feel the need to vindicate yourself today. When Paul said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21, his statements were grounded in the justice of God. He had said a few verses earlier, quoting the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And if you know that God is going to repay, you know He's going to repay perfectly. Every last little bit of suffering he's going to pay exactly according to what they need. And so you say, all right, I know that they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living dead. This idea of being ready to judge is that he's, he's there. He's raiding. He's coming. He's, he's just ready to do it. He's willing. And it's going to come. 
and to come perfectly. And knowing that will help your spirit lead you to sanctification on the day of trouble when you trust the judgment. Because you're not in charge of repaying the evil that's come upon you. It's God's job, so you don't need to worry about it. You don't have to worry about bringing justice. God will bring justice. Well, I think about uh, from time to time, we leave our home in charge of our oldest daughter. Vanna and I are off doing something, dinner out, enjoying something like that. And our oldest daughter, it's difficult for her. Because we give her all the responsibility, we give her all the authority, but she has like no power to exert this authority. And it's hard. When her brothers and sisters don't obey her, she has no power to force them to obey. And she can be, I was telling you, easily flustered and frustrated. Just like you can be easily frustrated and flustered when you want to vindicate yourself. But at these times, what she needs to do is trust that the judgment day is coming. Mom and dad are going to come home from dinner and we'll deal with the situation. And if, to the extent that she does trust that and does rely upon that, it will help her sanctification in those times, right? And so also with you, is this you trust the judgment, it will sanctify you today in your suffering. Because you won't have to worry about that. You won't have the vindictive spirit. You'll have a kind, loving, gracious spirit. Second admonition, number two. Don't I trust the judgment. Verse six, trust the gospel. Trust the good news. Now, here's another one of those hard verses in this section. Verse six is, let me read it. The gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, some have used this verse to justify the view that people have a second chance after they die. Because the gospel has been preached to those who are dead. That's what they say. Is that what it says? Well, I don't think that's the best way to understand verse 6 in light of the whole view of the Bible. It says there's no, no second chance after the dead. You don't have that. I believe the best way to understand this is the gospel was preached to them when they're alive. And they came to faith. But because of the sin of Adam and because of their own sin, they were judged and they experienced death. But it's not over for them. Those who have died and those who are in the tomb, they are alive in the Spirit. And they will live in the Spirit according to the will of God. See, there's life beyond the grave. Yes, they've been judged of the flesh. Yes, they have died, but they may live just as, chapter 3, verse 18, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And they're made alive simply because they trusted the Gospel. And I will say this, that trusting the Gospel will prepare you to be sanctified in your suffering. It will. The glories of of everything that awaits you, the the undeserved mercy and grace and kindness of God that's come upon you in Christ. I mean, that will help you respond mercifully to others. Thank you. Help you respond in grace and kindness to others. The Gospel will give you great hope for the future. Chapter 1, verse 4, we, we talked about this months ago. 
that in Christ He's caused us to be born again by His mercy and we have awaiting for us this inheritance which is imperishable and defiled and will not fade away. It's it's beyond anything else that you can imagine. And even there in chapter 1, it's verse 6. You're greatly rejoicing in your salvation. You're greatly rejoicing in the gospel, the, the expectation that you have in the future. And that's what gives you joy now for a little while if necessary. You've been distressed by various trials. Because the gospel is going to allow you to succeed through your suffering and to sanctify you there. This whole future hope thing is huge. You've you got to set your hope on Him and you've got to see where you're going because that will give you hope. Not only is God's going to deal with the unrighteous, but He's going to deal with you through Christ so that you will be okay when mom and dad come home. Because you're going to be brought in I think about Paul. He went on his first missionary journey, went to several cities, and he was back through those cities. One of the ways in which he was strengthening the souls of the disciples is by telling them this. He was strengthening and helping them, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. See, there's a plan we're going through here. It's a difficult path to get there. Listen, but it's worth it. It's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's like Pilgrim walking through the many tribulations and many difficulties, keeping his mind on the celestial city. And he got there. And the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't only a message of a life of bliss. It's a life of bliss to come. But now it brings a life of suffering. Our sufferings now, but our glory is when? Later. So I just say this in closing. Get ready to suffer now. She might share His glory later. So let's pray. Trust it to the Lord. Lord, I pray You take these words and cause us as a church to be those who Your glory in Christ Jesus put no confidence in the flesh, who prepare ourselves to suffer and when we suffer realize the sanctifying effect it's going to have upon us, that You might sanctify us, perhaps even bring more suffering, which brings more sanctification. Cause us to be more like You. We know that when You appear, we'll be like You because we'll see You as You are. And in that day, rejoice. And even now, as You are working in us, conforming us day by day, more and more into the image of Your Son, I pray You'd help us. And I pray that as suffering comes, may we have our eyes wide open to see and fully understand what's taking place, that we may rejoice in these things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.